Welcome back to History List and our series New Connections, Episode 8, Spear of the Nation. If you're like most people, Egypt is too vast to contemplate. I mean, just think on it. The last pharaoh, Cleopatra, lived closer in time to us today than she did to the origins of her civilization. That civilization flourished for three thousand years. The first proper pharaoh arose around the year 3100 BCE, and there were kings predating him going back at least a century before that. For 3,000 years along the Nile, the pharaohs led their people. Think of what that means. People on this planet worshipped the Egyptian gods, Osiris, Anubis, Ra, and the rest, for a thousand years more than Christianity has even existed. When faced with this staggering proposal, we focus on the favorite hits of Egypt, the pyramids, the mummies, the Book of the Dead. Only an Egyptologist takes the time to learn about the specific dynasties and politics of such a long period, and only a meager handful of important pharaohs could a person name. Ramses, Hatshepsut, and of course, King Tut. But that steadfast three millennia of unbroken rule is illusory. In reality, the Egyptians had coups, civil wars, gained territory, and lost it. One of the most interesting dynasties began to the south in a land called, as you prefer, either Nubia or Kush, modern-day Sudan. A Kushite pharaoh, yes, they had pharaohs too, named Pai, launched an attack on their northern Egyptian neighbor and took over. Since Pai was a black man, this became known as the dynasty of the black pharaohs, the 25th dynasty for those keeping track, which lasted from around 744 BCE to 656 BCE. This overthrow and those that follow gives our episode its name. While they were in control, Egypt was again invaded, this time from the north. The Neo-Assyrians were on a conquering spree, and much of the land was seized. The pharaoh of the time eventually rallied and pushed out the Neo-Assyrian emperor, but that emperor's son, Ashurbanipal, spent his early years trying to maintain some grip on his father's claims to Egypt. Ashurbanipal wasn't just interested in his borders, however. He created the world's first great library in the capital, Nineveh, of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It boasted some 100,000 books and wouldn't be rivaled until Alexander's library some 400 years in the future. Indeed, the library at Nineveh was the model an inspiration for Alexander's great collection in the 200s BCE. One of the brilliant minds in Alexander's library was its librarian, Eratosthenes, who found fame as a geographer, figuring out the circumference and axial tilt of the planet with some accuracy. Roughly a century later, another geographer came along, Ptolemy, 
who built upon Eratosthenes' work and published a work titled simply Geographia. Eratosthenes had made some of the world's first projection maps, but Ptolemy's and his work were more accurate. Mind you, they still had some serious flaws, these maps of Ptolemy, and it was Arabic scholars centuries later who worked on improving and updating them. By the late Middle Ages, the Mediterranean world had increasingly accurate maps, especially of coastlines, called Portland charts. The earliest came from the 1200s, and Arabic versions exist as far back as the mid-1400s. These charts are what allowed the Portuguese to begin their circumnavigation of Africa, a process that started in the 1440s with sailors heading down the coast and returning to tell what they found, the Cape Verde Islands, the mouth of the Congo, the southern tip of Africa. The latter was navigated by Bartolomeo Diaz, who reached the Cape of Good Hope in 1488, the first European to do so. Of course, by then, the Portuguese had set up trading outposts all down the west coast of Africa. With Portugal's explorations and trading outposts, the continent, or at least its coastline, wasn't such a mystery to the rest of Europe. By the early 1500s, the Portuguese, under Vasco da Gama, had sailed around the Cape all the way to India and back. The next major naval power to head to the region were the Dutch. In 1645, a ship was built, the Dromedaris, and the Dutch East India Company sent it to Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, in 1651. On the way, they stopped in Table Bay, South Africa, and set it up as a halfway point on the journey to Indonesia. They also built a fort in the area, and thereby began establishing a Dutch colonial presence in the Cape, originating in 1652. This was a trading post. It was fully owned and operated by the Dutch East India Company. It had a measure of independence until the 1690s, and then, for a full hundred years, it was controlled by the corporation outright. But there was a problem. Geography. See, South Africa and the Cape lie at just about the same latitude as the southern Mediterranean. That is, the Cape and the Mediterranean are equidistant from the equator, north and south. So they share a nearly identical climate. For the Dutch, the desire to settle the Cape became irresistible, and so the Cape colony of the Dutch East India Company was now an overseas colony of Dutch settlers, and not just a lightly manned trading post. These Dutch settlers became known as Afrikaners, and spoke a Dutch derivative language called Afrikaans. For centuries, they farmed the land, killed the native inhabitants, like the Indibili, and pushed ever further into the African interior. Those who pushed inland were known as Boers, the farmers, in a word from the Afrikaans and Dutch. But the holding did not remain Dutch. By 1806, the land had been ceded to the British. While most of the population remained Afrikaner, the land was now part of the British Empire. Tensions between the groups arose, and by the late 1800s, the region of South Africa, 
known as the Transvaal, had declared independence from Britain. Well, that didn't serve British colonial interests one bit, and so they launched the First Anglo-Boer War in 1880 to reclaim it, but ended up losing. An independent South African state emerged in 1882. Unfortunately for the South African Free State, a gold rush precipitated renewed interest in the area, and the British returned in 1899 to reclaim the land, this time at all costs. The Second Anglo-Boer War was a slaughter. The British debuted the new Maxim gun, the forerunner of the machine gun, and placed the Afrikaner Boers in concentration camps, the world's first. Over 26,000 Boer women and children died in the camps. By 1902, the British had won the war at a terrible cost to the Afrikaner population. By 1910, all of the regions that had been settled by Europeans became unified into the Union of South Africa, under British control. Once it was unified, it made colonialism and racist policies explicit. The South Africa Act of 1910 only allowed whites to vote, and expressly forbid blacks from serving in Parliament. Three years later, blacks were denied buying land, and by 1923 they'd been segregated into specific housing areas. They weren't allowed to learn trades after 1926. A decade later, all tribal chiefs were stripped of their political power, replaced with the British crown. So it was in this increasingly restrictive, racially charged, and segregated society that, after World War II, apartheid was introduced, becoming national law by 1950. How did we get here? It all began in ancient Egypt, which was overthrown by the Nubian pharaoh Pai, establishing a black dynasty who had to fight off northern incursions from the Neo-Assyrians, one of whom, Ashurbanipal, set up the world's first great library in Nineveh, which inspired Alexander the Great to do the same centuries later in Alexandria, where geographers like Eratosthenes and Ptolemy made some of the first calculations about the Earth and some of the first projection maps, which then inspired ever more accurate maps like the Portland charts of coastlines, which allowed the Portuguese to sail around Africa to the Cape of Good Hope, which the Dutch began to settle in the 1600s with the Afrikaners, who fought the British in the Boer Wars of the late 1800s, leading to the establishment of the Union of South Africa a nation which tried to bring Afrikaners and British together by emphasizing their racial difference from the black population and a series of increasingly restrictive policies culminating in official apartheid by 1950. Globally, desegregation movements were on the rise by the 1950s and 60s in step with decolonization. The United States desegregated in the mid-1960s, as did Canada and the United Kingdom. In Africa, Rhodesia began fighting for desegregation at this time, culminating in independence by 1980. As the decades passed, South Africa's apartheid was increasingly isolated. Within the country, an organization fighting apartheid, the African National Congress, or ANC, kept pressure on the regime, and activists such as ANC leader Albert Latuli and Black Archbishop Desmond Tutu won Nobel Peace Prizes for the work. 
But such peaceful goals didn't suit everyone. One more militant offshoot emerged, spearheaded by a lawyer and boxer, Nelson Mandela. Mandela fought for black rights in the courts and was eventually convicted in 1962 for his connection to this new militant organization. He served 27 years in prison. By the late 1980s, however, the South African president, de Klerk, began to transition the nation away from apartheid and slowly, quietly, released Mandela from prison in stages, understanding that he, as the icon of apartheid injustice, would be critical to a post-segregation South Africa. Fully freed in 1990, Mandela ran for president in the first election with full suffrage, black and white, and won, serving as president of the newly desegregated South Africa from 1994 to 1999. His presidency has come to mark the end of global legalized segregation worldwide and a new chapter in democratic Africa. Segregation, of course, remains, although not in legal forms in most countries. We must remember that, as a planet, we made up the concept of race back in the era of those Portuguese explorers. Europeans just decided, somewhat arbitrarily, that skin color would be used to classify human beings. That allowed them to be ranked in terms of superiority and inferiority. After all, what else could they use? Hair color and eye color, height, these were common to the Europeans who want to subjugate and enslave. Skin color became the method, and wrought havoc around the globe for centuries, and is still doing so today. Our generation must continue the legacy of Mandela and all the other forces of global desegregation in undoing, while not forgetting, the collective past history of racial injustice. De Klerk and Mandela shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993, which Mandela found ironic. After all, he'd been jailed for his militant, non-peaceful activities with a group bent on sabotage and violence, Un Conto We or in English, The Spear of the Nation. <laughs>